This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, welcome to the show. Oh, that's a deep breath because I just finished today's interview in which I got super emotional. Today is a powerful conversation. Right now, we're in a series called For the Love of Being Seen and Heard. Oh, man. This is such part and parcel of what I feel like is my work in the world which is to see and hear each other, which is to see and hear communities that we are not a part of, which is to see and hear voices that have been traditionally silenced or marginalized and even seeing and hearing our own selves. And so this next guest is just, I don't even know, man, I, the word powerhouse doesn't even do her justice. It really doesn't. And it, it really isn't even the right word because she, she is as tender as she is powerful. Like, I don't know what the words are, but Rachel Cargill is someone I have admired for a few years. And I, for a million reasons, she works in so many spaces that matter. Feminism, racial justice, the arts, activism, self-care, healing, I mean, I could really spend a million years listing all the things that she's good at and passionate about. So here's the high level on Rachel. She is a New Yorker, originally from Ohio. She's a writer and an entrepreneur. She creates powerful online learning spaces. She's a regular contributor to Cultured Magazine, Atmos, The Cut. You you might have seen her featured everywhere. The Washington Post, the New York Times, Forbes, Harper's Bazaar, I mean, the New Yorker, like just all, the whole list, the whole gamut. In 2018, she founded a really special nonprofit called the Loveland Foundation, which we're going to talk about. It offers free therapy to Black women and girls. I mean, she's moving mountains, you guys. She has a new book out right now that will take your breath away because she's such a gifted communicator. It's called A Renaissance of Our Own, a memoir and manifesto on reimagining. It's an invitation for healing and growth. 
this book will make us re-examine how we are in relationship with ourselves and with one another. It's a life-changing message. That's why I think it's pretty critical that we have Rachel's voice in this series. The crux of her book is approaching the power of curiosity and reimagining in order to dismantle the systems that no longer serve us, that are predicated on injustice, all while building liberating new spaces. And so I think this idea of curiosity, of reimagining, of looking at what is and asking new and hard questions about what could be is the the key that turns the lock to to justice and to societal change. And every one of us has that power. Every one of us has a mind capable of unlearning, relearning, and reimagining. We are influences in our own little worlds. And that matters. Collectively, that is so powerful. And so I'm super passionate about most of the things that Rachel is too. I'm so committed to the work of anti-racism and feminism, but particularly the intersection of those two, which Rachel and I have a fascinating conversation about today. And so I think this one, this conversation, just buckle up, man. I, I invite you to just pull up a chair to the table and listen and learn. Rachel has so much to teach us. And at one point, oh, I can, like, I'm emotional just recalling it. It made me cry because it was so precious and powerful and tender and reminded me why she is such a trustworthy leader. And so this is no holds barred conversation. And I'm so glad that you're here to listen to it. So it's my delight to introduce you to the very lovely and also the very fierce Rachel Cargill. Good morning. I have been looking so forward to this conversation and I just bounded out of bed this morning and went, it's Rachel Day. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to finally meet you. It's yeah. been a long time coming and today's yeah. the day. I today's the day. Yeah. Today's the day. I just so admire and respect not just your work, obviously, but just kind of who you are in the world and how you move through the world. And I posted something you wrote last summer as you were sort of steering into the summer and you were writing a bit of a manifesto for how you wanted to enjoy your body and the air and the water. I, I must have read that 50 times. I put it on all my socials. I thought about it. I returned to it. You invite me into a softer, quieter place than I have natural access to, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that reflection. Yeah, you do. My my natural energy is um is sort of assertive and it's sort of go and it's sort of busy mm. and it's kind of high and it's kind of octane. And so I am just so immensely drawn to your leadership and learning how to be softer in this world that is so hard. And so 
Okay. Hi. That was just a little a monologue. I monologued you. at you just now. I'm sorry. I told you I was, I woke out of, I woke up this morning like, oh my God, I finally get to meet Rachel. Sorry. That was a little built up. Okay. So I have obviously told my listeners a little bit about mm-hmm. you, Rachel, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of your credentials and this, you know, some of the amazing work that you do. But if you don't mind, if you can kind of high level mm-hmm. how you would sort of describe yourself in the world and and then walk it maybe back to the beginning, if you if you would, how you kind of became an activist in the first place and what fires were lit under you from an early mm. age to kind of bring you to where you are today. I just literally put four questions in front of you. <laughs> no, pick, it's okay, I get it. Pick and go. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your opening monologue. I, I'm so grateful to be reflected, to be reflected by people. Mm. I really feel like right now in my life, my understanding of community is reflection, both seeing myself and others and being able to reflect others to themselves as well. It's my, it's the most potent form of community for me. So thank you. Oh, that's lovely. For that. You're welcome. I also, so Right now, I really feel like my work, and it's changed probably since you first saw saw my work too, which I, which I think also is part of my work. This changing out loud, sure. this shifting out loud, this, you know, being human out loud in yes, the ways that same. we don't remain the same. Um, but I really have found that my understanding of my work right now is one to always center and support the wellness of Black women. I am a Black woman. It is a part of how I exist on the planet, who I am in relation to everything else. And so I really do this work with that intention. And, you know, this work can be done many ways. The the celebration, supporting, centering of Black women can look like being a teacher in a middle school or, you know, in a a school full of Black girls. It could be being a therapist serving primarily Black clients. It could be all of these things. And I feel like my role on this landscape is really to learn and heal out loud, to give language to how we all can do that, to invite Mm -hmm. people to ask questions. I'm, I'm certainly not an answer giver, but I will offer some questions we must ask ourselves to come to our own answers and what that means in our own hearts, our own minds, our own homes, our own communities. And so I I definitely see myself as someone who offers questions for us to make deeper considerations for who we are in the world. And I Mm -hmm. feel very grateful for that type of work because it's it's really just thinking and thinking out loud, feeling out loud, healing out loud. I feel like that is what I am here doing. And this all really started back in 2017, nearly Mm -hmm. six years ago, almost, when I was, well, actually, I will say, I'll say this, my public being yes. by the public happened in 2017. Yes. That work started when I had a photo go viral from the Women's March in 2017. And I began to get invited to write about my feelings around feminism and around race. And it was at that time that I learned or I recognized all of the things I didn't know about feminism, all of the Mm. things I didn't know about this intersection of race and womanhood, all of these Mm. things I didn't know about a truer, less whitewashed history of Mm. feminism. And I decided to take this opportunity when I was called out uh, by the Black community asking me, do you even understand what this white feminism has stood for historically? Do you even understand our positionality within a feminism that often prioritizes whiteness 
awareness over womanhood. And I started to really learn so much that I didn't know. And I decided to make that learning my platform, this, this space for me to learn out loud, to invite people to learn with me in community, and then to share what I'm learning. And so that has been my work publicly since the beginning. But I think it's really rooted in this curiosity that I feel my mother seated in me as a child, this desire, you know, seduction of possibility to say, oh, wait, what is this? How is this? Where is this? Why is this? And that's something my mother really, really Love planted that. in me. And it has turned into the work that I do in the world. And so I am a, a person who learns out loud, who invites people to ask really meaningful questions together and figure out some answers together to move us all forward towards a collective healing, a collective joy, a collective grounding, and as a Black woman, it really often centers with that particular community. And I believe that when Black women are poured into, it really offers a ripple effect to most other places right. in our communities and societies. I love that for 10 million reasons. One that stands out to me as I'm listening to you talk is this posture that you take, even inside of activism, of curiosity. Mm -hmm. which is special to me. I have also done a lot of changing in the public eye, which for better or for worse, <laughs> some people love it and some people don't, but it's this is live. Out there. It's, it's a, a wild, wild word out there. there. Everybody has an idea of opinion, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's hopefully we're all doing that as we're growing and evolving and changing. But I had my comeuppance 15, 20 years ago, more in kind of a faith space. And mm -hmm. so what I was groomed to prioritize as a leader was not curiosity. It was certainty mm -hmm. that, that certainty was rewarded mm -hmm. in that community. Curiosity was seen as suspect. It was mm -hmm. seen as wobbly. It was seen as a slippery slope mm -hmm. into God knows what new mm -hmm. ideas. Oh my gosh. And so I now, you know, I'm, I'm 48 and I've grown a lot and I've changed a lot. And so I find myself deeply drawn to leaders that still prioritize curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's so inviting. Mm -hmm. It's so welcoming. It, what your leadership says to me is you don't have to know it all on the upfront. You, you don't even have to, let's figure it out together. Let, let's, let's enter into the conversation. Let's weigh it out together. Let's reason together. And that to me, that's exciting. And so I think this is one of the reasons, Rachel, I'm drawn to you so much is even inside activism, which some, which sometimes has hard edges, mm -hmm. you have a softness to you as a leader. Thank you for, for reflecting, for reflecting all of those things. And I, I, I appreciate it particularly because, you know, it's, it's one thing to do work and it's one thing for your work to be received in the way that you hoped it, it is right. going out in the world. And so I, I'm, I'm so grateful for you recognizing that. And one thing about activism, and I grew up and you'll read in my book that I was married to an apostolic minister. And so I also know the stronghold of being right, of not straying from what is understood right. and not even like what is understood modernly in the church. It's what's understood like literally a bajillion years ago that isn't even applicable. I'm so grateful that I do get to show up in the world with with questions, with invitation for possibility, because that is is the activism 
you know, insisting that we come up with new ways to exist with each other That's in kinder right. ways. And the only way we can do that is by asking questions, is by being willing to right. dismantle what we already understand, is to be able oh, to right. step out of that certainty because the only certainty we have is what's currently existing and what's currently existing is not working. And so we have to have some openness and have some accessibility to other parts of ourselves that aren't being used in capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and all of these things that are really unraveling us. And so I, right. I just wanted to, to tell you my appreciation for you both recognizing that and participating in it and finding value in this collective problem solving. And not yes. even so much collective, I, I won't even say collective problem solving, this collective dream session of making considerations of what else is possible. Yeah. Thank I you. love that. I, I absolutely love that. And you are so right. To some degree, curiosity lies at the heart of of social change. Mm -hmm. it, yes. It's I a mean, curiosity. The, the, systems, yes. the systems are insistent on us not being curious. That's right. If they're not curious, right. they will stay the same. And if they stay the same, That's then right. the people who built them to win will continue winning. These That's just right. nothing, nothing in our world is by accident. Everything was yeah. built and there is a winner at hand. And very right. rarely are the people the winner. It's the the small group, the small group who had power. And you know, people can have the power and, and we have power in our dreams and our imagination. It's actually almost the only place we have it right now. And the, right. the necessity to bring that out of ourselves and and you know make it tangible together mm, it's so true unjust systems are working exactly yeah. as they were intended to yes. precisely and by their own rules and so mm -hmm. you are you couldn't be more right this is huge ethos of your work mm -hmm. including being a writer mm -hmm. as mentioned and you're you're just a beautiful breathtaking writer Thank you. and let's talk about a renaissance of our own so a Renaissance of Our Own, the subtitle is A Memoir and Manifesto on Reimagining. And that really does sum up what I put into the book. It is a collection of really reflections from me and my own life, looking at what I was born into, what was expected of me, what societal expectations were placed on me from being born a girl, being born Black, being born in the Midwest, being born Christian, be all of these things that were given to me to understand myself mm -hmm. and how throughout my time up until now, I have looked for new ways to what I call hop off of the life escalator we're put on as children. You know, you go mm. to school, you go to college, you get married, you buy a home, you you know, it just goes up and up and up. And there's really no way to get off of it. <laughs> like mm. if you if, the higher you go, the less safe you are trying to get off of it. And so I I really reflect on one of the biggest decisions I made to get a divorce when I was young, I got married young and then I got yeah. divorced young. And that was really my first hop off of this life escalator. And mm -hmm. I've been saying a lot, I've built this like staircase instead, this stained glass staircase that allows me to move mm -hmm. at my own pace, maybe sit in one space for a while, maybe go back a little bit, maybe you know make some leaps and jumps depending mm -hmm. on what's best for me. And so this book looks through various aspects of my life and how I reimagined it based on my own highest values, my own understanding of self in the world, looking at uh, reimagining feminism and 
the way that I came into understanding this intersection of race and womanhood and how it yeah. really had, to, I had to shapeshift my understanding and my reader's understanding of what feminism was if I was to feel committed and safe in this movement together. Mm -hmm. Looking at reimagining education, getting into and leaving Columbia based on my experiences there, being, mm -hmm. a, being a woman, being a Black woman, being an activist, reimagining love, exploring the experience of my divorce, looking at my own experiences with relationships and non-monogamy and really also considering my decision not to have children and being clear and speaking up about that. It's a book where I lay out a ton of questions for people to answer for themselves and tell my own story as kind of a reflection for what they might consider things could look like for, for them. I What I love about this book is I don't know if it's gonna give too many answers, but it will give you all the questions you need to get mm -hmm. started towards your own Renaissance. And I'm so excited. I think the best thing, and Jen, you probably have a similar experience. I think the best thing about being a writer is that our books are conversation starters. It's yeah. just my, my voice. And I'm so looking forward to hearing the voices of others in response yeah. and in relationship to the book, because that's what this is for me, a conversation. I'm asking some questions. I have I have some, some interest about my readers and about our collective work towards liberation, towards justice, and I'm excited for the conversation to continue. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. You raise up so many frameworks and systems to analyze. Mm -hmm. and, and that sounded very clinical. You do it from an experiential place, from a place of soul and heart but also from a systemic place mm -hmm. and you help us um, learn how to look at systems historically, how they got to be where they are and what they mean today. I would like to hear you talk more about the intersection of feminism and white supremacy. If you could just, I, I know this is a large, enormous conversation, but I'd like to hear you talk through, okay, this is kind of when you stepped into feminism, as you knew it, however many years ago, this is what you thought you were signing on for. This is what you learned, mm -hmm. particularly at your intersection. And then what you see as some of the paver stones into equity and justice. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up 
and I write about in the book how I grew up very Christian and yeah. I understood feminism as a threat. And so while while I certainly noticed that I was embodying a lot of these understandings, I still sat in the seat that feminism was a threat. And I'm talking growing up from like a child through my early 20s. And when I got my divorce, which is also when I left the church, yeah. I was able to explore it with a different curiosity that the church just didn't make space for. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to explore it, I was very like moved by what these women had been doing over centuries, over generations mm -hmm. to guide us toward an opportunity to be well as women in the world. And I was mm -hmm. so inspired and I really started digging in and I started digging into the point where I was joining young professional boards at major feminist organizations in order to really catch up with what I hadn't understood about feminism when it was presented to me when I was younger. And as I began to dig in and understand and be invested in this, I was I, I, I had a lot of pride in it. One, because I felt like I was finally making some decisions for myself that were outside of the influence of what was supposed to be within the religious yeah. context. But also I recognized that for me to live a, a life that is whole and well and well that this would be something i'd have to continue fighting for and i was happy to continue fighting for it and so when the women's march came up i was very excited by this opportunity to be on the ground fighting for this thing that over the last few years i had become very much so in relationship with and i did take a lot of pride in it, and i still do i don't regret anything but what i do understand now is that there are many more layers and many more roots to what i needed to understand to have the fullest view of not just feminism itself but who i I might be inside of it. As I mentioned, after the Women's March happened, Afropunk put up a post and I got a lot of commentary, put up the picture, yeah. which is me and a white woman standing side by side, Dana Sukau, a really good friend of mine. And it opened up floodgates of criticism and yeah. feedback from people letting me know what I might not understand about the movement and what I might want to be curious about in order to, mm. to, to better position myself. Mm. And I was open to that. I was receptive to that. I felt it was, you know, tough love for my community letting me mm. know that as a Black woman, there's a few more things I need to understand. Mm. And so I took the next several years reading, listening to lectures, listening to friends, listening to elders explain to me what I didn't yet know. And a lot of what I didn't yet know was what it meant to be a Black woman in the feminist movement in, in spaces full of white women who were having a very different experience than I was and who were benefiting from the outcomes of our collective work more than the Black women who were doing equal amounts of the work and sometimes even more of the work in mm. these spaces. And what that meant to me as a Black girl who grew up in white spaces and who had a lot of white feminists in my world was that, wait, if I don't know these things, then I know they probably don't know these things. Mm. And, and now it is a liability for me to not show up with this information and this knowledge to make sure we are all clear about this intersection of mm -hmm. our feminism, but also our race and how there has to be a truth telling, there has mm -hmm. to be a accountability, and there has to be intention in how we exist in this space together for our collective liberation. And one of the first pieces that I wrote was for Harper's Bazaar magazine, and the title was Feminism is Often Just White Supremacy and Heels. It's mm -hmm. this space for white women to fight for justice that actually doesn't really apply mm -hmm. to the liberation of Black women, women of color as well. And so it really 
launched me on to this many years of learning out loud and inviting others to learn and going out and teaching what I was learning in order to make us more critical about what feminism is and what it means to all of us, not just to some of us, even something as clear as there being so many white women at the Women's March in 2017, it being an overwhelmingly white space. And as someone who lives in New York City, I know how many of those women had nannies of color at home with their children, keeping them so that they could go out and fight for rights instead of bringing them along, empowering us together. You know, like who was left behind, who wasn't centered, who was still used as support in the fight instead of the center of the fight. And these types of questions insist that we examine what we're doing, why we're doing it, and in what ways perhaps the feminist fight is an attempt to grab the power and use it in the same way, as opposed to come in with a reimagining of what it means to have equity and justice and not just be a replacement of the power that's already there at the top. I'd like to hear you talk more about this. Can you drill in a little and, and specifically to this idea of the need for more truth telling? Mm-hmm. inside feminism. And I'm thinking about the listener right now, the white listener who would identify as a feminist, consider herself in that community. And as you just mentioned, likely blind mm-hmm. to the discrepancy here, even the hypocrisy mm-hmm. baked into the fight. There's like a self-congratulatory mm. space in being a feminist, mm-hmm. a white feminist. Mm-hmm. It, there's a merit to it, self, a self-given merit. And so I think this conversation about peeling back the curtain a little mm-hmm. and saying, let's examine this closer mm-hmm. and see how threads of white supremacy and racism are permeating even this supposed space of justice, mm-hmm. right? Where it feels like, we're kind of fighting for women, but there are some, there are, there's so much to re-examine here. And I'd just like to hear you talk more about it. Like what you are, how you are leading the conversations you are hosting, what you are inviting white women to ask. It is abrasive because change is abrasive because being critical about ourselves is abrasive. Yes, it is. And I I think, you know, we understand that there's some breaking before the building, you know, when we're working Mm -hmm. out our bodies, our muscles actually break down a little bit to rebuild up. That's how we gain, you know, more muscle in order to change things. There has to be some abrasiveness to recognize the way that it's hurting. And for those white women who are listening, the reason why you haven't made this consideration is because you are benefiting off of all the privilege of these systems. So of course, the person who is sitting in the penthouse isn't understanding the flood that's happening on the ground because it simply doesn't affect them. And so while I don't think white women are all sitting in penthouses with lack of understanding, that's the key. That is this insidious reality that we're all existing in, this insidious air that we're all breathing, even if even if we don't see it or we don't understand it. And often the reason why we don't see and don't understand is because we're the benefits of we we're the beneficiaries of it. And I mean, I can say that as a able-bodied person who, you know, my mother was disabled. And so I had a Mm. bit of a clue into all of the ways places weren't accessible. But if you don't have a disability, then you're not going 
going to see the sidewalks that don't have ramps. You're not going to see the buildings that don't have elevators because you literally don't have to think about it. And so we all have to come with yeah. this insistence of making considerations and being curious about, I, I call it a radical empathy, an empathy mm. that doesn't just say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Yeah. It's, a, it's an empathy that says, how do I play into you not having your needs met? And often there's an answer mm. to that. It's because of my all of my privileges and how those make me blind to what your needs are. And so mm -hmm. I think that that is an entry point for white women right. who haven't asked these questions. This isn't about shaming you for not asking these questions. Mm -hmm. It's about insisting that you now ask them and not just ask them, but do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so my work within this space is, you know, it really started, as I said, with my own learning and education and looking at the start of the feminist movement, looking at our heroes, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton, these women who are lost and celebrated within the feminist spaces and all of the racist things that they said mm -hmm. in their own campaign for women's rights, looking yeah. for women to get the chance to vote. And, you know, they're quoted mm -hmm. saying things like women's rights will advance white supremacy, women's rights, you know, they, they had this understanding of where the power laid. They had this understanding mm -hmm. of how the game is played and they knew that they could leverage right. their whiteness, even if they couldn't leverage their womanhood. Right. And they did so. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that is what it has been kind of a foundational material mm. of this feminist movement that where we know we don't have power within our womanhood, we do know how to manage our white husbands, we do know what they value, we do know how we can make sure that our white sons are cared for, we do know what they value. And so there is this leveraging of whiteness within a world that is called feminism, but it's not including That's all right. women. And so mm. there is a necessity right. for us to be critical and mm. to ask questions and to be have this radical empathy that insists that there can be no way that anyone else will rise without all of us doing it at the same time. And that falls into a framework that I use in my own teaching. It's called KEA. It stands for knowledge, empathy, and action. And the knowledge part is what I started my own journey with. This learning outside of a whitewashed lens. That was the issue. That's what started this journey for me is that I was learning about feminism, only hearing from white people telling white stories. But what is the feminism that tells me about Ida B. Wells, who was told mm -hmm. to go to the back of the line during the Women's March, though she was doing just as much work, these mm -hmm. white women insisting that she not have a voice and they'll quote unquote, let her be a part of it, but she must be at the back of the line. That is a story of feminism. That is a story of work that was yes. put in and a story of the conflict and, and and the reality, the truth of this feminist movement. And what what the truth allows us to do is change something. If we're if we're only if the only materials we're using right. to change is lies, mm. there's nothing it's it, it, it will evaporate because we're not actually working with something. We have to work with the truth. And so truth starts with actually understanding the story and being critical. Who whose books are we reading? If everything you understand about feminism is yeah. being written by a white woman, I promise you you are not getting the history of feminism. If everything you know that you understand about the black community is coming from a white news source from a white newspaper or from authors i think you know i studied i, I studied anthropology at columbia and i would go through my syllabus and i would look for photos of the authors we're reading from and i'd say why am i only listening to white men tell me about the you know the the understanding of gender in west africa like this makes no sense to me and so being critical about whose stories we're listening to and from whom and then the e in it is that radical empathy not just saying i hear you i see you but saying how 
do I play into how you're experiencing the world? And what can I do to change that with the privileges that I have? And everyone has privileges. Everyone does. And I there's often the pushback. Well, I was born a poor white woman. How could I have this privilege? The yeah. poor white woman going into the welfare office is going to get priority over the black woman going into the welfare office. Right. Regardless of where you are, there is a privilege in whiteness and we see it across the board. So yeah. there are ways that all of our privilege so shows up, including my own, which I talk about in the book, my own mm. privileges of being neurotypical, of being mm. able-bodied, of being educated, of being financially secure at this point. There are all of these ways that I have to be considered as well. And this framework mm. really supports any way that you want to show up as an ally in any spaces of injustice. And then the A stands for action. Anti-racism is not a self-help space for white women. It's not a space for you to read a few books, write a few journal prompts, you know, call yourself an ally. This is an actionable space and social media yes. often warps us into believing that what we can do depends on our audience or our following and mm -hmm. feeling like we have a platform. But I often say, you know, your kitchen table is your platform. Your child's school system is your platform. Right. When I was out lecturing, when I was out touring my Unpacking White Feminism tour, I was often asked, during the Q&A, well, how can I teach my kids these anti-racist lessons? And I'd ask them, has your, has your white child ever seen a black person exist with you outside of cleaning your home or, you know, serving you in a way? Do you have any black friends that you invite to dinner? Mm -hmm. Is their pediatrician black maybe? How do they understand black people based on how you relate to them in your own world? Mm -hmm. And it's really this idea that there is no rocket science to it except for being intentional, showing up with knowledge, empathy, and action and doing it with heart and doing it with intention. And so I, I hope that my work continues to invite people to do every one of those things. Super powerful. One of my good friends, Latasha Morrison, she runs an organization called Be the Bridge. And the genesis of her work was creating something of sort of a, a, a racial justice conversation inside the church in general. It's broader than that now. It's grown, but that was sort of the onset. But she hosts a lot of spaces of education. And so one thing that I've always loved about her work because it is laborious mm -hmm. to, as a, I can only imagine how laborious it is, a choice when you are a black woman to enter into spaces where you are largely educating white people, even well-intentioned as all white people would say they are, you know, that's, that's their self-identification, well-intentioned. That's, that's on our, all of our headstones, but she has a rule that she created. She's got a really large private kind of Facebook space mm -hmm. where people who are in the community committed to some sort of process mm -hmm. are invited, but her rule is, and it's strictly moderated. You, if you're white, you are not allowed to say one word in here for three months, not mm -hmm. one word. You have to be silent for three months. And all you can do is sit there and listen, mm -hmm. listen, learn and read because she so deeply understood that initial in that defensive instinct mm -hmm. and it's shame-based you know, there's this, this shame defensive spiral that white people just, just start circling the drain. And she's like, I got to figure out a way to get the white people over that. Mm -hmm. Like you've got to get over that space so that you can have, so you can get to, to truth. I, I wrote down what you said. Truth allows us to change something. Mm -hmm. 
There is no change when we are operating from a faulty base. There is none. It's fake. And so I appreciate that you pull no punches here and say, we're not going to have a conversation based on your fragility. We're just not doing that. You're going to have to just sit there and be quiet and learn. And when you want to onboard, and this is why you center black women as you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's a big part of what my work looks like now, because for those years, those three, four, five years where my work was really rooted in these conversations with white women, in unpacking white feminism, in educating white women on the truth of white feminism, I completely burned myself out in, mm. in many ways. Yep. And I my body was being weathered. I recently wrote a piece and it tells the story of me going to a chiropractor because mm-hmm. my my shoulders and my neck and my lower back oh. were just like screaming yeah. and I go to this chiropractor and he's like starting to work on my body and he quote unquote is like trying to find a first way in so he's like just touching different parts of me yeah. and he this man looks at me and goes are you in therapy <laughs> and I'm like uh wow yeah, why he goes because I don't think this is about your body. You need to go like deal with whatever you're dealing with emotionally. He's like, I'm not even going to charge you for this session today. Just like go. He's like this. He's like, I don't think I can help you. And that was really a reminder and a, a very clear reflection of the way that this work is affecting my body. And I really had to make a decision. I had to make a decision because I knew that I wasn't going to leave this work. This is my work. This is what I do. And I feel not only proud, but grateful that this is the work that I get to do to be part of this conversation. But I had to also be true to the wellness of myself and that doing this work isn't just about convincing white people that our lives matter but it's also about us living well in the time that we're here and Mm. for black women and my friend ebony janice always reminds me rachel you too are one of the black women you're fighting for you too need to be well and so that really made me consider what can this work look like for me outside of me completely dissolving myself in many ways and so i i I think that my audience has really seen a shift in the way that I show up because it is no longer rooted in this kind of high intensity yeah. insistence on something. Yeah. Instead, is inviting people mm-hmm. to consider with me what else is possible through whatever way makes sense for them. And a necessity of that is for people to be critical of themselves and say, wait, what role do I play in this? What role do I play in the conversation Rachel's inviting us into? And for, for white women, there might be many ways. And, and I mean, there's there's these niches of people. There's the white women who are married to black men, and that puts mm-hmm. them in a particular situation mm-hmm. and conversation. Mm-hmm. There's the white people who literally have never, there's not one black person in their town and that puts them in a situation so i hope to pull people out of whatever space Mm. they're in and have them thinking critically while my work continues to exist in this celebration and centering of black women that now is much more my foundation is a place where i really am able to pour into this healing and this well-being of um of the community i want to serve and even my own healing work my Mm. own healing out loud going through you know my own racial traumas, going through my own experiences of grief, going through my own experiences of career, of writing a book, of being in these industries and living those out loud, speaking those out loud, being critical of those out loud, 
this too is the work. And so mm. it's a really wonderful opportunity to reinvent ourselves many times with new mm. information we know about ourselves in the world. And so yeah. I was able to do that again, to find this softer, this this more seated space to do this work. And maybe it'll look different again in 10 years and it'll sure. be a bit more involved and it, it'll be maybe a bit more on the ground and I'm, and I'm ready for that when it comes, but I'm staying true to what I understand about myself and my needs, mm. my community's needs and how I'm in relationship with all of my readers, including the white women who continue to learn from me. And I'm grateful to continue mm. to tend to this landscape of, of my work. I'm obsessed. My friend Chelsea was wearing the softest cashmere sweater in that perfect weight for spring. She told me it was under $50 made by a fantastic company named Quince. And I could shop for my laptop which is my dream. So I immediately ordered the cashmere tee. Now I want it in every color. Quince offers staple pieces like Chelsea's Mongolian cashmere sweater, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, classic like 14 karat gold jewelry. You can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials, but unbeatable prices. You guys, seriously, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And I know what you're thinking, but Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible practices and premium fabrics, which I love. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash hatmaker for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hatmaker to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hatmaker. That's beautiful. I'm curious as a leader who obviously centers the wellness and the goodness and the justice of Black women, what is the, if there is, is there a primary resistance from the Black women that you serve that you really have to grab them by the hands and say, let's move through this? Yeah. In terms of us doing this work together. Yeah. In, yeah. In, yeah. I think, you know, or even internally for them. I mean, there may yeah. be an internal hurdle. I mean, white supremacy is so internalized for anybody yeah. who lives here. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You know, we all understand what what one does in in trauma there's dissociation there's convincing ourselves that are telling ourselves new stories that we hopefully sure. can survive in there's you know dismissal of truth in order to be well and one thing that america has always stood as a truth is that black women do not deserve rest black women don't even need it in the medical field they say black you know it's historically understood that black women don't experience pain in the same That's way right. that white bodies do yeah. so, so black people aren't even allowed to feel much that our our, our job and our space here is to produce for the yes. wellness of others and so inviting black women out of that understanding of themselves yes. i think is one of the hardest not only because women in general have a bit of that within the homes that our job mm. is to you know birth children care for them find a husband sure. care for them, help our parents care kind for them like the patriarchal narrative for yes, sure the yeah. patriarchal narrative that is spread even further and even deeper within Black women because we were never valued as anything else but producers, yeah. as workers, as property, really that's in right. so many spaces. And that's why my foundation focuses on Black women yeah. because I know when they are cared for, the families will be cared for, the organizations will be cared yes. for, the communities will be cared for. And it's it's one of the hardest things to insist to Black women that there is a wholeness about themselves that 
isn't centered in that, that isn't rooted in that. And, and as yeah. we continue to have these conversations and this insistence on black women being able to be soft, because when you're soft, you're vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable in America as a black woman that you could die, you, you could die, your, your children could die, your family could die. That's a truth. And so there has to be this balance of the, the fight and the, the fight and the tending, the fight and mm -hmm. the nourishing, because one or the other can either, can either harden you or dissolve you. And so there has to be a balance. And so I'm hoping to find wow. that balance in my work and in conversation with black women to remind them that the softness serves. It's not a liability. And so it's been my honor to invite black women into a softness that they didn't recognize in themselves. And for them to invite others in their families, one of the things, one of the, the stats coming out of the Loveland Foundation recently is that our age range is moving up of black women who are who are taking in therapy with our organization wow. and so what that tells me is that this conversation is not starting you know not starting and going forward with us that we are also healing backwards we are healing up it's not just the healing for us and our descendants it's healing upwards and that really matters when we have generations and generations of people who have been living in trauma it's mm, so beautiful Makes me feel emotional. Just, just this idea of telling black women, like you get to be soft, like you, you, sh mm -hmm. you deserve it. You deserve to be a whole human person, not just a strong workhorse. Like mm -hmm. it's so, mm -hmm. that's such a healing message. And I'm so grateful you're delivering it, but I can, I can only imagine the hurdles to overcome, to, to, to believe it. Yeah. To and we, we see it in so many places. This makes me think about, I was on the train once I live in New York city. So I was on the train and I was particularly tuned in to, to whatever I was witnessing that day. And I, it was the end of the day. I think I was coming, I was a nanny at the time. I think I was coming home from work and there were two families. There was a white family with children and there was a black family with children. And the difference in how they were in their bodies in that space mm -hmm. was so stark to me. The white kids were playing around and they were being silly and they were you know a bit energized and sprightly and the black family both of the children were still in quiet laying on their mother you know exa clearly exhausted from perhaps the longer travel they took or whatever hurdles they had to get during their commute. And it was such a stark reminder of my own childhood and seeing how, you know, in the book I talk about going to a soccer party, you know, the end of the season soccer party. And while all the kids were playing outside, I was sitting inside talking to the mother, asking her questions because I just could not understand how my mother was just as smart and kind and we didn't live in a home like theirs. And I was asking her like, what, and I was seven years old saying like, what did you do? Like I knew, I, I obviously didn't have the concepts of race in my head at the time but i recognized that there's a discrepancy yes. between who got what and i and me and my family were not in the pile of who who was getting things yes. even though i understood us to be just as hardworking, just as kind just as intentional and so this theme of who gets access to wellness who gets access to the living who gets access to so much of what makes a good life makes up a good life has been a theme in my consciousness for a very long time and i'm grateful to get to continue that into my into my adult career me too last question You've, you've mentioned it and I mentioned it in the intro, but I'd love to hear you talk for just a moment about the Loveland Foundation and what its 
vision is Mm -hmm. and what your dreams for it continue to be? Yeah. So the Loveland Foundation started in 2000. It was conceptualized, I should say, in 2018. I was attending Columbia, finally getting access to a therapist in an ongoing way that I hadn't before. And I just I was still nannying at the time. And I had this moment of like such healing from a session. And I said to myself, every black woman deserves this, like every black woman needs this. And I think another theme of my career is I am having these experiences and then I invite others to join me. So one of them was having this amazing therapy experience and inviting other people to join me. And it started as a birthday fundraiser. I was, I, I think I had this thought in October, my birthday's in November. I was like, oh, let me raise funds through the end of November yeah. to try to help black women pay for therapy. And it just became, wildly successful. We raised mm. over $250,000. And I I had such a wonderful opportunity to meet who is my present CEO, Charlene Kimler, who's also a philanthropic professional who came to me. And she has been leading the foundation for uh, since our beginning. And we offer, it, it's really like this trifecta of goodness, I call it, because there is me getting to live out this work that I really value. And then there's the Black women and girls across the U.S. who get to have access to therapy. They sign up. We do not have an application process. There's enough trauma in, in you know, proving why mm. we deserve support. Wow. And to take that out wow. of the process. It's just a wait list. We open cohorts every quarter and allow people to have access to uh, vouchers that they simply submit to their therapist. We'll take any there. We we love to connect them to Black therapists or if they have a Black therapist that can really relate to their experience. But anyone who they trust and who they want to see who will accept the vouchers, we will pay them for their time. And it's been wonderful to pour into their financial s- stability. There's such a low yes. amount of Black therapists. We want totally. to make sure they stay here. We want to make sure we support them. So not only are we obviously paying them for the work that they're doing, we're also supporting them with other organizations who are offering free workshops to give the more certifications in their field so to help good. get a leg up in the field. So it's it's us being able to both support Black women and girls and getting the, the help yes. and the healing that they need, supporting Black therapists to grow in this industry yes. and to be more available and to feel stronger in an industry that doesn't really support them or carry them in the ways that they deserve to be. And our collective healing and liberation is, is all in the mix of that. And I feel so grateful. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. That is such good work. I I'm so moved by that. Yeah. What a what a worthy use of your influence and mm-hmm. your time. It's just so good. I'm gonna link everybody listening to mm-hmm. all of this. So don't worry about it. Don't be trying to <laughs> scramble to Google, like finding it all. Like what a great place to send our dollars. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. And one of the really special things about the foundation is that we have not accepted any government grants. The whole of all of our fundraising comes from individuals who have decided that they want to pour into us. And that's really special for several reasons. One, we're one of the first organizations to make as much, to pull in as many donations as we have from individual donations. And we have found that the individual donations are about $5. It's not like we're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from these 
States. They're everyday people who say, this is a way I can take action. And I think that's really special. So we really just ask people to continue with their $5 when they can, if they can do it monthly, if they can do it annually, if they can do it, you know, in the times that they think about it, it's been Mm. a bit. And I also have to say, because a lot of us don't understand the philanthropic industry, it's really an industrial complex, which is again, another podcast. But you know, when the, when there's government grants involved, they have all of these regulations about how you can use their money. and what they expect you to do with their money. It's strings attached. Yes, there's so many Mm -hmm. strings attached. And what it means when we do this type of collective community care is that you all can trust us to use the money in the way that it needs to be used. And we, of course, have our reports every year, so the community sees it every year. And the staff is Black women. The staff is Black women. Our board are all Black people. And we're able to really to have that knowledge that our community has and the empathy as people who are experiencing the same thing to take action action with with the funds people have donated. Beautiful. Well done. Thank you. Final question. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I am very moved by our conversation and by you, by your leadership, by your work. This is a question that I ask all my guests in every series. Mm -hmm. And I borrowed it from a Episcopal priest that I love. Mm -hmm. So I didn't invent it, but, and you can answer this, Rachel, however you want. Like if you are in a tender place and it's a tender answer, great. If, if you have an absurd answer that is just completely off the rails, great. We get it all. So, but I like the question, which is what is saving your life right now? Music. Music. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I was never into music as a child. I didn't grow up in a musical home. I didn't, um, Mm like play instruments really it was and i grew up in a christian home so we had limited music <laughs> options and pays. and so it wasn't yeah. until my adulthood that i got to kind of be curious about mm. what am i interested in outside yeah. of what i was told is good music even you know when you get older you're able to like step away from pop music too to feel like that is the music because you know when, you, when you're younger you want to be in the midst of whatever's most popular and so getting you know i'm 34 now and i'm able to kind of like have have a little more curiosity about what's interesting to me personally and i have been in my music era i've been in my music well, era. tell us more what uh, did you discover yeah, what do you I, love i am so into south african jazz i'm so into yeah. reggae music i'm so into <laughs> you know like just artists who are artists for the sake of it not because this is their career not because they're about to be on the billboard charts i'm really moved by art and maybe i should say art in general i'm very moved by art mm, i've I've, come, I've, I've gotten to do some art writing which yeah. has been really special me finding these ways to do work outside of anti-racism because like mm-hmm. oh my gosh how silly would it have be how how silly would it be of me to use all of my creativity as a writer sure. writing about race like i want to write about uh-huh. art i want to of write course you about do. and um, you do yes i want to I, I want to be a rich auntie supreme and write about my decision <laughs> not to yes. have children yes. i want to, i want to find other ways we have to use our art to fight for justice like no i want Good. to write about other things and so being able to write about art has been really special for me i've been able to get into a few wonderful art catalogs and and really mm. you know i feel like art's role 
is to remind us of humanity because it, it, if it wasn't there, we would get caught up in the robotics of systems and to remind us that we're humans as well. And so art and music, and I, I put music in art, this, this space of art has really been saving my life because it allows me to be anything other than a black girl trying to survive. Oh, that's beautiful. I, for what it's worth, as somebody who just reads your work and follows you, I see that imprint on your on your leadership. I see it. I, I started out the show by saying you have a, you, you, you invite your community into a softness that is driven by beauty and art and language and lovely words and deep self-care. Like I see that, I see that on you and in you, and you are stewarding that message really well, just alongside everything else you are doing in the world. And so I am, so grateful for you. And I'm, I'm so proud to learn from you and thank you for being a te- one of my teachers. And so finally last, just, <laughs> I, I'm going to link to all this. So nobody worry about it, but yes. can you just tell my community where to, where to best mm-hmm. find you and follow you? Cause you and I have just, we just scratched yes. the surface here. Like this is the, the yes, bare minimum me. of what it is you do. Yeah. Yeah, follow me on Instagram, my my personal Instagram page. Jen will link it, will get you to most of my work. I talk about all of my things. I own a bookstore in my hometown of Akron, Ohio. I have an Instagram page called Rich Auntie Supreme. It's a yes community and celebration for people who have chosen not to have children. I have The Great Unlearn, which is an online self-based or self-paced donation-based learning platform where we really bring in and celebrate experts, marginalized experts to teach us things that whitewashing just completely lost us for recently. It's just so much wonderful things. And my book, my book is coming out. So there's all of these spaces we can be in community. My foundation, we'd love you to donate. There's just so many ways for you to, I call it the Loveland landscape. I see my work as a landscape that there's the foundation, the bookstore, TGU, Richanti Supreme. And I'm I'm excited to continue to till this land and be in community with you all. Here, here. I'll link to everything. Thank you for being on today. Thanks for your time. Thank you for everything, everything, everything. And so, okay. Until we get to finally meet in person. I know it'll happen soon. Yeah, it will happen it. soon. I feel it in my body. Now that we've talked, I feel like uh-huh. there's just this like, pathway to when we get together. <laughs> Same. Thanks, Rachel. All right, you guys. This is, you'll want to immediately follow Rachel. And I promise you, you will not regret that choice. It's not only to learn, no matter what, I love how she said, wherever you're coming from, you know, like she offers a lot of on-ramps to this conversation from whatever environment you are in, but also she's just good for the heart and soul. And so whatever you come for, you will stay for the depth that Rachel will deliver into your life. As mentioned, if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will link everything we talked about, all of her socials, her website, her online learning spaces, her book, everything. So you can find it there. Plus the show notes. This is a good episode to share folks. When she talked about KEA, knowledge, empathy, and action, one super simple action step is to share this episode. That's it. Just share it with your little community, share it on your socials. That's who's listening to you. That's who's paying attention. That's your world. That's your sphere. Super, super simple action step to sort of join in the conversation. More to come in this incredible series. And I think you're going to love it. 
and it's been really powerful for me and I hope it is for you too. All right, you guys, see you next week.